So you're something of a scientist of politics. At least trying to be. Like, I feel like the soft sciences are still waiting for their Copernican revolution. <laughs> you know, I mean, hmm. Newton said that he could figure out the planet of celest the the movements of celestial bodies, but the human mind was still very much um, a mystery. I love that. Uh, and Newton kind of was the last alchemist or the first modern physicist, depending on how you look at it. I'm kind of hoping at least by the end of my life, I could accomplish something like providing a scientific foundation for social science and psychology and, and meaning because that's, that's kind of lagged behind. It's a little bit more complicated of a territory. That's Lots a tall order. What do you figure is the function of figuring that kind of stuff out? Well, I mean, just figuring it out is more of a personality flaw than anything. Like I can't just sit with it as it is. The social world is endlessly confusing and I mean, call it being on the spectrum or whatever. It's just always taken me a little bit of time to step back and understand why humans do the things they do. Cause it doesn't follow strictly rational principles, obviously. So what principles does it follow? That's getting better at it, but. I mean, so it's just as much uh, a puzzle that's been dropped in my lap with no specific reason to figure it out other than that it's really, really interesting. It's, it just happens that politics governs every like facet of my life. So, so being able to apply principles of human behavior towards power structures tends to be like good applied science, I guess, in that respect. How do you see politics <laughs> as affecting you on a daily basis? Well, it's been, um, there, there's that Chinese curse, may you live in interesting times. I kind of feel like uh, the rate of change has, the rate of change in the amount of information out there has reached a certain like inflection point on a graph to where it's well beyond most people's capacity to make sense of anymore. Like from an archival perspective, the amount of information generated for Trump's second election campaign is greater than all of the libraries of antiquity and every newspaper up to that point in history. But the amount just of information... Scan, just for one scan, it took that much data, that many terabytes or however many bytes of data to, to, to create this production in humanity. And that's a lot of bullshit to sift through. But the meaning of that content is pretty repetitive, right? Well, there, there are some patterns, you know, I mean, that's the best you can do is kind of lump it into baskets to see who's behind what, what narrative, what that narrative accomplishes, you know, practically speaking, where the rubber meets the road, because you can have your ideas up in the ivory tower, but you still have to apply them to life and to the systems that are maintaining our life at this point in time. And they don't always work as intended. Do you consider well, that? Their intentions aren't always clear either. Sometimes mm -hmm. the effect that certain communication intends is different than its stated purpose, and that adds a whole extra layer of confusion. Just beyond the complexity of it, then there are bad actors who are making it more confusing than it should be in the first place. And that's kind of why it's so hard to treat politics and psychology as a science, right? 
because you have a layer of subterfuge and intentional what's the word intentional disinformation disinforming disinforming that doesn't really occur in physics the same way yeah i mean every once in a while someone might have like an ulterior motive where they publish some fake papers i think uh, i can't remember if it was uh, korea or china who had claimed that they had successfully cloned a human being a while back Mm -hmm. and then it turned out that it was just totally faked and probably for political reasons Hmm. but that you know, there, there's at least some gatekeepers in place to minimize that in physics. And the reasons for knowing truths of a physical nature are a little bit uh, less obscure. Do you uh, think that it's actually possible to get at the truth of the social world if so much of it is hidden inside of people's minds? Because that's kind of the thing that I always wonder about. As you trace politics, as you trace human interactions back to some origin point, there is a great difficulty once you hit against the skull of the person you're talking to. You know what I mean? What goes on inside someone's brain and what they say goes on inside their brain are probably not the same thing. They're oftentimes nowhere close to one another, right? Yeah. Well, um, and so, um, at least as far as, as having a disadvantage in terms of, of figuring out um, social cues and the, the, the soft things that are supposed to be communicated by the things that people say that are then supposed to be understood in context where you, you know your role as, as a member of society to, to compensate for that. I've sort of switched to thinking, like, looking at people's behavior and taking that as a more legitimate determining factor of their beliefs than anything that comes out of their mouth mm-hmm. words are cheap evolutionarily speaking rude, but it also works you know to, to see what people do not listen to what they say um and there's but, a sort uh, of pragmatism to that too it's more applicable well speaking of pragmatism and um particularly american pragmatism as its own distinct philosophy I was just reading the essay, How to Make Your Thoughts Clear, uh, by, by Charles Sanders Pierce. And he was talking about, um, like, uh, Descartes and how Descartes came up with this system of doubt where, like, maybe nothing about the world is real. Maybe God just put this, like, hallucination in my head and everything that I think is real is just blah, 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 blah. And it, it's an interesting pretense uh, for hypothetical scenarios, but at least according to Pierce, at the end of the day, if you jump out of the way of a moving automobile, this, sorry, automobile. (laughs) I actually prefer automobile. I'll use that. Automobile. That, that should be a thing. It It has a nice, uh, you heard it here first, folks. (laughs) But we, I interrupted you. I'm sorry. Um, but, uh, so, so if you jump out of the way of the automobile to spare your life, you probably don't doubt the existence of, this objective external reality to the same degree you claim you do. Hmm. You're a, a Cartesian and trying to say that it's all hallucinate, but what did you actually do? Uh, that's more uh, the habit habits as an expression of belief. I try to look at those in a Piercean sense. You kind of see this <laughs> revived right now in the simulation theory people. It's, um, 
I mean, uh, simulation theory, especially with a lot of them are also red pillars because they're they're trying to build on on the matrix, and there's this this mythology about being able to see the truth of the matrix by taking the red pill. And for some reason that gets perverted and flipped upside down to where these two trans sisters come up with a, a metaphor for like seeing the truth of oppression. And then the oppressors flip it around uh, to uh, being able to see the truth of the obstacles in their way to enacting a certain patriarchal system of yeah. oppression inside of the uh, PC, uh, what do they call it? The cathedral. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This and that's is kind the... of what we wanted to really get into with you today is about this flipping that goes on all the time in your earth media well so hold on a second you said the cathedral which leads us to what is the movement called the the dark enlightenment the dark enlightenment or uh, the neo reaction there's a number of different like sub labels i guess if you wanted to be like more broad you could say the alt-right which is sort of the bigger umbrella of peoples with their different ideologies. And then there's the neo-reactionaries are the tech guys who have been coming up with better scripts on how to um, congeal their biases into a new base to, to prop up a new, a new power structure. Because the, the platform... Yeah, the platform... Sorry, I, I talked over you. You said that it's a totalitarian power structure in nature. And the idea of the dark enlightenment. So let's say that there's two sides here, right? There's the progressives and there's the neo-reactionaries. And the neo-reactionaries believe that democracy is a failed experiment. And so what we need is on earth is some kind of monarchic corporate governance. Yeah, they go back to, I mean, like, you still got paleo-conservatives who think that Jesus rode dinosaurs, and Mm. you still got the dipshits who believe them, but they're not really that big of a factor in determining outcomes in in the modern discussion. The political right, as far as I'm concerned, begins with the uh, Western Enlightenment, and Mm. it it seems that, that, like, people like Nick Land and Peter Thiel are like, okay, something happened in the Enlightenment, something really good. And all these new products came out of it. There was this energy that was released that was a creative force in society. We want that again because that has slowed down. They must have done something wrong. Let's look at the Enlightenment. Oh, they also gave us democracy. Maybe that was where the Enlightenment went wrong. And if we get rid of that flawed part of the Enlightenment, that's the democracy part. And we go back to the aristocracy that gave us capitalism part. That, that's where we should center tradition in today's terms. So, so they're, they're, they're kind of coping with in the enlightenment pursuit of objective reasoning coming to a dead end. So there's like two sides of this, as far as I can see, where on one hand, you have the people who think that the enlightenment was great and the problem with it was industrialization. And then you have the other group that looks at the Enlightenment and is like, industrialization was great. Democracy is what really sucked. Because there's really two halves of the Enlightenment, right? It's this idea of democracy, and then it's the idea of industrial capitalism. And both of those things started at the same time, really. Yeah, they started at the same time from the same people. And and 
being reactionaries uh, and thus like predisposed to to look backwards to a, a status quo ante that's their basic political impulse is to like oh times were better than what did the strong people in the past do differently than what we're doing today and uh, so the the hyper capitalism part and the survival of the fittest is really the one thing that they want to preserve and and throw the rest of the enlightenment out who are some of these players that you're referencing? Mm, that's a good question. Well, one one name that comes to mind is, is Nick Land, who's not exactly that powerful politically speaking, except for the fact that he's Peter Thiel's buddy and that they are intellectually influencing one another. Oh, I was talking about in the first version of the Enlightenment. But we, we can get to that too. Oh, yeah. like way way back to the the um the death of the commons and the emergence of this like privatization mm. of everything. I think the privatization part is really more than anything. What, what they think was the one thing that worked about it. Mm. But, um, and I'm not going to deny that, uh, there's a certain aspect of modern industry that has collectively raised everybody's standard of living. There's, there's some, there's some truth to that. Sure. Air conditioners, <laughs> refrigerators, cars, I got this heat, man. What, what was that? Which is like the flip side, this heat. <laughs> you know, it's nice to have an air conditioner, but it kind of sucks that we're turning up the temperature outside to power it. Yeah, the cities are pretty warm. Yep. Uh, last I checked, uh, Portland was melting. Yeah, infrastructure and there was, was like lightning pieces. chucking uh, clouds of fire in <laughs> Canada. Yeah, things are not good. Things are not good on Earth. But this is, and this makes sense that this would be a time where humans were looking around and kind of on all sides recognizing that something had really gone wrong, right? Yeah, who, who, whatever narrative you've been operating with up to this point is past its use-by date because our current situation has no precedent. Exactly. So um, some people are trying to figure out where to go next. Other people are just trying to leverage power by um, profiting from the confusion. because They don't really have that long-term care about like what, what does it amount to overall? It's more like, what can I get out of this based on where I'm standing right now? And it doesn't matter if what they're saying is true or false, as long as it motivates people to empower them for whatever agenda it is they might have That's probably money probably money but this so, is shiny. Oh, go ahead. Like, some of the most powerful people on the planet are operating on no greater impulse than ooh shiny thing mm. Mm, make the more shiny thing go and they just happen to have this historically accumulated clout to to continue living in that way where everybody else is stuck in this problem solving position where we can acknowledge that it it's not working out on the big scale because we're not in on the, the proceeds in the small scale. Who do you see as seeking solutions versus seeking shiny things? Well, um, I mean, there's people of all different ideologies. I think to some degree, it might actually be the case that Elon Musk cares, even though he's like, got the wrong idea on how to go about it. I don't exactly blame him having some bad ideas about how to manage a planet coming from uh, like brutal tyrants down in South Africa. 
Like I think his money all comes from uh, what is it? It's not diamonds. It's sapphire mines. Mm, I had no idea. So you see it more as like there's a spirit of willingness to find solutions that runs through lots of different humans everywhere. But it's also there's also a spirit of screw it, let's just get rich. Well, I think um, the the uh, libidinal payoff is even more subtle than that for Nick Land. When I read. The more I read of his writings, it seems like uh, humanity as a whole might even be a worthy sacrifice to this like future that might have some humans who've benefited from all this like cybernetics and advanced technology, but that like Homo sapiens as such, our day is done, and we can just go ahead and like not worry about this this being the end of our species because the the supermen are about to arrive on the scene. Mm. Mm. So this does kind of come down to the idea that there's a group of people who are related to the industrialists who needed a large population. At least in spirit. At least in spirit. Yeah. Who needed yeah, they're, a, they're continuing on in the family tradition. Yeah, exactly. Of, of the aristocracy that was uh, forged through in industrialism. And that aristocracy needed a huge amount of people on the planet in order to power their machines for a really long time. And now you have this moment where it seems like it's possible to invent programs that can run the machines for you almost as good as people. And the likelihood is, is that they won't complain as much as the people. They won't need health care. They won't need a good environment. They'll be easier to manage. And so why not go in the direction of basically severely limiting the population on Earth in order to bring about this ideal future where only the few have survived. Yeah. And, and, you know, I don't think they even need, um, it, it seems to me like they don't really need it to be, um, genocidal in the same way that the white supremacists were, were, um, using genocide as a motivating factor back in the rise of the third Reich. Mm. <laughs> But at the same time, they also need to um, create the necessary social attitude to make human life cheaper. And racism is a cheap ploy to that end. So they're not afraid to mobilize racism Mm -hmm. in terms of just like disempowering humankind in general. I was uh, another name. I was just talking to a friend about Alexander Dugan, who I would place overall somewhere within the dark enlightenment. Somewhere within this, like, techno-fascist push towards a new authoritarian future. Who's this guy? Uh, Alexander Dugan. Whenever the Hillary Clinton camp says anything, or, like, let's call them the liberals. When the liberals say something about Russian intervention, you get the idea they're talking about Putin. Who they're really talking about is this geopolitical theorist, Hmm. Alexander Dugan. He's, like, the brain trust or at least organizes the brain trust in the fascist parts of Russia on how best to influence Putin to turn his back on Western interests as, as quickly as possible so that they can, you know, kill a bunch of people who are in Russia's way of expanding and, and becoming the dominant power now that America seems to be too incompetent to manage itself anymore. Is there an American analog of this character that you can think of? Well, it, it's interesting because um, bo- both Dugan 
and Steve Bannon are students of Julius Evolva. Like that's that's the underlying um, anti-human pro-hierarchy mm. sort of mentality. Like fuck the little people, we'll just like kind of kind of purge them and, and then have our way in this future. What did you say so, his name yeah. was? Julius Evolva. Yeah, Julius Evolva. He's a uh, he's been taken more seriously recently. Um, he tried to advise Mussolini back in the day hmm. on on how to make fascism like a really pure fascism because he thought Mussolini was like too influenced by materialists. He wasn't ideal. He wasn't doing fascism on a big enough scale. He's like, you got to kind of step it up with this ethnic hatred and and your imperialist conquests. And and Mussolini was like, yeah, yeah, whatever. So Evolva went over to Hitler, and uh, Evolva's ideas actually sunk deeper into Nazi Germany than they did into Mussolini's Italy because Hitler was a more receptive audience. But in, in that tradition of thinking, the heirs of that line of thought, you have um, Trump's main advisor, Steve Bannon, here in America, who's coordinating with Alexander Dugan over in Russia. And those are the people who are in forming the alt-right in terms of their praxis and strategy. And this ideology, just real quick, it's basically in service of efficiency, like the most efficient way to consolidate resources? Power? Well, I mean, resource wars are are starting to become an increasing reality in this um, age of global warming. And It seems like they always have been. Yeah, but I think that um, at least at the level of their underlying populist armies, it's been a lot easier to ignore until now. Like your average Republican might be more likely to admit that global warming is real at this point. So rather than gaslighting people about its reality, I think they're starting to feel more bold as to say, well, this is how we can play fast and loose with exterminating that demographic since it's gotten this bad. Which is serving the efficiency of this machine. This is an industrial machine, essentially. Yeah, and especially like emboldening the um, agency of the person who's perched atop that machine. You Mm -hmm. know, like for every other one of us, our possibilities are being limited and our strength is being limited and our borders are being closed in. But for the people at the top, they're so there's like an ego dimension to it that have never before been like you have private billionaires going out into space as as an example of what the individual can accomplish it's individual freedom for the person at the top everybody lower down on the pyramid is like Mm. at best a stepping stool and they're, they're turning from being in the position of being a stepping stool into being entirely extraneous altogether or at least they like to think that these people underneath them are extraneous. The actual biology of the matter is no, like eugenics is bad because humans are one of the least diverse gene pools on the planet. Like we can't lose too much more of our diversity. We've already run out of races because we've killed every human race, except for the one that still exists. Mm. The last one to go extinct was the Neanderthals. People are still trying to figure out a subset of the human race that they can 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 eradicate and and take the resources from, but like any pruning of subspecies is like ultimately pruning like the stability of our remaining 
gene pool. So they can't really get away with pretending like the people underneath them aren't important. There's also a great, there's a great <laughs> themselves to the point of where they can pretend that, that that will work in the long run and that they can still go on after that. Well, there's a, there's a great history of cooperation with the humans too, especially when they're stuck facing natural disasters. It seems like it's not an entirely salient argument from an evolutionary standpoint to argue that only a few surviving is the whole story. I've recently been digging back into Darwin um, because this this was a question when when um, Darwin started to propose that all of these seemingly disconnected species shared a common origin, then the idea of like how humans could come from monkeys and are some humans like more evolved than other humans in that respect, there was real question of whether human species, humans had subspecies and whether like the white people who had managed to enslave all of the rest, because like that was in the context of the British empire that, you know, I think, what is it every four days that a country celebrates their independence from Britain at this point in history? (laughs) Like the sun never set on the British empire. They had rose to the top of that pyramid and every other country on the planet was in service of, of the wealth of the British at that point that Darwin was doing his escapades to, to look at all of this diversity. So he was, interpreting it from a certain lens but what's really interesting to me is that they seem to have sort of just sidestepped that discussion like people just don't define the word species anymore it's like what does that even mean not even the biologists yeah, will like, give you a consistent answer like how can a dog and a coyote and a wolf still make babies if the definition of a species is that you know only like two creatures that can breed and produce fertile offspring below well, that, that clearly draws outside the lines of dogs. Well, evolutionary uh, biologists will grudgingly ex- sort of cede the point that the definition of species is highly, highly, highly nebulous at this point. It's basically meaningless. We, we interviewed a fish biologist and he was looking at different species of rockfish, like these kinds of fish off the California coast and he would continuously talk about different kinds of species and then sometimes he would talk about offspring that were the result of a cross between two kinds of species they'd be like half and half fish like half red rockfish half yellow rockfish and it was just kind of this absurd thing that it's accepted that it doesn't really have a real delineation I gotta go empty the tanks one second yeah, it's um, it's kind of arbitrary when, if you go about trying to like take a pile of things and sort them into this thing and that thing. You can pick a feature that seems to be the difference that makes the difference, and it's it's often wrong. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, and like, I, I don't think any serious biologist who who doesn't have like a, a strong geopolitical sort of um, alternate agenda would. I I don't think it's a state of the sciences anymore to say that like the different in skin pigment is like a fundamental category of difference as far as the function of the human species is concerned. All it really seems to suggest is a uh, difference of ancestral latitude. There's some medical <laughs> effects that come with that ancestral latitude, but it's like absurd to reduce it to this one characteristic 
rather than that characteristic being a side effect of a shared cultural lineage, right? Yeah, like why would you classify people strictly in terms of melanin content when that can vary inside a single family versus like why not classify everybody based on nose shapes? I think it's just the lowest hanging fruit. It's like just laziness, basically. Yeah, like, well, if you can just like know who gets to tell people what to do Mm. and you have a group where it's like predetermined that they have to do it by political fiat and and you can like look at them and know skin color has been a very useful tag for creating social division around around um, a hierarchy of labor but it's um pretty much any scientific justification for that categorization falls apart you know it's all political and cultural and social that that people get um, packaged into different races and nationalities. Right. So it makes sense that people would want to, or, you know, folks on the top of this sort of dominance hierarchy would want to harness that ability. It's interesting. Uh, Putin just put out this um, revision of Ukrainian history where he's um, talking about how all the ethnic differences between Ukrainians and Russians that the Ukrainians perceive are actually like a mistake and it's, it's just one people. So that's why um, the rest of the Ukraine is, is rightfully going to be incorporated into Russia in the near future. Uh-oh. Yeah. That's uh, as far as like redrawing the lines and then getting to change how that enables you to enact violence on different groups in a, in a somewhat arbitrary fashion. That's why I think there's this big resurgence in uh, race realism like you were asking about if if America or like about Steve Bannon and um, Dugan being kind of like what's the word analogs for yeah like yeah Dugan is America's or Dugan is Russian Steve Bannon Steve Bannon is America's Dugan um, there's also like a Chinese guy who fills this role who who reads Dugan and Bannon and from that tries to advise the leadership of communist China as to how they take their stake in this whole debacle. And um, well, So the thing that's interesting about this is I, I see two things that they're kind of separate threads. So I'll put them I, on I the table. I just wanted to finish that thought, but the yeah, one thing that all China, Russia, and the United States agree on is that the most effective leveraging point to get people motivated to do the violence necessary for this expansion of empires that's coming up is they have to treat race and populism like, like it's an actual fact rather than just a construct. That, that's the big con that all three countries are trying to get their people to sign up for is, is that race is real and it delineates different human species who can only work within a power structure generated by their own like biological you know group how do you see that playing out like science in science or just well, in um, in racial movements or how do you feel see them justifying that across the board well given how closely steve bannon and uh, zuckerberg have been working together now now zuckerberg has allowed bannon to ask for people's heads on spikes the timing of it is, is impeccable, too, because, um, you know, Steve Bannon makes this call for violence the next day the Capitol riots happen. He does that with Zuckerberg's permission, with his 
specific sign off, not just like some employee of Zuckerberg, but Zuckerberg's like, okay, Bannon, go ahead and tell them to do the Capitol right. I'll is let there, you do that. Is there a paper trail for that? Or is that just Yeah, correlation? there's actually a big discussion around why um Bannon got unbanned on the day before the Capitol riots. Hmm. What was his tie and, to the Capitol like, riots specifically? What's that? What was his tie to the Capitol riots? Was he publishing, promoting them prior to them occurring? I mean, Bannon's whole thing has been uh, overthrowing liberalism. Which is the goal of the neo-reactionary movement. You have to demonstrate that democracy is non-functional in order to be able to have these tech and corporate interests come in and take over. And this is kind of what I was going to say is that there's like two aspects to this, which is that on one hand, there are definitely people who don't want to work with somebody who doesn't look like them or share their ancestry, right? So that is a pre-existing division in society. And then on top of that, there's also these people who benefit from chaos because in the chaos, you can do things that order would effectively prevent you from being able to do. You can loot a country's resources when it's busy being distracted by something that people love being distracted by. This is honestly a really, really basic human phenomenon, as far as I can tell, right? The the push for well, either... You, you got to distract someone before you can cut a hole in their purse and empty it. Yeah, these are basic grifter technologies. It seems like yeah. from where I'm standing, like the um, a lot of the uh, older conservatives who are baby boomers who might not really be following all of the subterfuge that's made possible through information technology. They might legitimately um, say and believe that, for for instance, the leftists have burnt down multiple cities in their entirety, and that's why this. Um, crackdown on protesting is justified because because the antifa people like look what they did to minneapolis and the whole time minneapolis was set on fire by a uh, white neo-nazi who took credit for the fire and it's still being spun by like steve bannon's media at, with the help of facebook as being like antifa run amok well Even i read about the the pulse shooting in orlando being a very similar sort of thing where the the guy who did the shooting was said reported in the media to have done it as a hate crime but in reality he just went to pulse because that was the only place that was available. He literally had never even looked for it before. He did a Google search for nightclub and went to the closest nightclub to where he was. It's kind of weird. I haven't um, revisited the Pulse uh, massacre in a while. If I recall, um, the person who did it was um, of um, Muslim descent but was also a professional whose training and like mentality had been forged within the uh, private security sector of the United States. That mm. he was like very ideologically what I would call a, a bootlicker, sort of attracted to the hierarchy and fundamentalism within um, the armed services, but not as a member of the army, more like mercenaries, kind of like, oh, what was that uh, Rumsfeld thing? That's changed its name a bazillion times. Uh, there, black there's something. A, yeah, Blackwater. Um, I forget what mm. it was 20 uh, name changes ago. It turned into Z Industries. 
Um, it's the company that um, our former secretary of education's brother ran. Hmm. You know, well, you got to be connected to get those jobs, you know? doesn't happen accidentally. Guns on wheels. Yeah, there's a whole, like, common thread of domestic violence being behind a lot of the mass shootings. And, like, the security culture and domestic violence go hand in hand. So there's a lot of... Um, but this isn't necessarily in the direction of security culture and domestic violence, though I do think that's related. I was more pointing it out in the way that you were saying the reporting around the Minneapolis protests was effectively spun to ensure a narrative that turned people against the protests that were happening this summer. The same way that yeah. the Pulse shooting was used to artificially create a narrative that there were anti-gay mass murders that were happening. But it doesn't have to be a conspiracy. It's like the journalists are starving to death right now, as far as I can tell on Earth. Yeah, they'll report on anything. There's, there's not really just a like, tradition. Please buy my story. Yeah, not a lot of people are buying newspapers anymore. And of the mainstream media, uh, so much work has been done to discredit them in the last like six years that, you know, people only mostly consume it to try to read between the lines in the first place. Yeah. The, the, the well has been so deeply poisoned through repetition of like all the, these talking points about fake news. Mm. On both sides, right? It's not like the left has a greater reputation with its audience than the right does necessarily. I mean, mainstream news across the board seems like it's really suffering these last few years. And it's pushed people into searching for independent news sources. But those independent news sources are inherently polarizing in much the same way that the mainstream news centers are and they're either broke or working for advertisers just like everybody else and it's algorithmic it comes back to this idea of the technocracy pushing for an ai dominated landscape because the way that people get their news and their perspectives are fed to them by algorithms that are pretty ubiquitous it's kind of interesting to see like the early crowd with Epstein, where there were a bunch of people who are affiliated with the Me Too movement who are wanting to hold like powerful people accountable. And, and so people were talking about Epstein before the Trump run and that story finally broke. He finally saw like not as much justice as he should have, but some justice. And it was finally to that point of where the story got so big that it was going to be on like everyday newspapers and those journalists who are hungry were going to stop self-censoring because a lot of them like reporting on tech news in Silicon Valley, they knew all about this shit and they knew they'd lose their job if they talked about it. That silence had been broken, but then the second it burst into public consciousness, there was already a spin machine in place by his conspirators to take power using the outrage of what they had done and the promise that they are the only people who could fix it like mm. how many people in trump's cabinet actually like were directly implicated as co-conspirators of epstein and yet they were the first ones to say like his his murder that he was murdered that he was the victim of an injustice mm. and for that after everything had been said and done, somehow they use a story of, of Epstein being murdered and thus a victim 
to convince the masses that Trump was going to be the hero to hold them all accountable. Was this where Q kind of came from? Yeah, like, the story could not be erased at that point. People were going to know who Epstein was, and we now know that he was one of Trump's really, really good friends and that they abused kids together. That that was part of their bond, that many of the um, kids who were roped into his trafficking ring were found at Mar-a-Logo. You know, there's still um, politic or there's still court processes regarding this that are ongoing. It's going to be really interesting when uh, Ghislaine finally gets her trial because a lot more of that's going to come to light. But they've done all of this damage control between then and, and when the full story is finally out that they'll already have done what they wanted to do with power and moved on before um, they are anywhere close to being personally accountable for what they've done. And I'm assuming, I'm assuming Trump, if he's indicted in this, can probably buy his way out of it. I mean, it's going to be interesting to see what happens to him, because once he stops being useful, it's not like um, it's ultimately going to work out for him in the long run or his family, you know. Hmm. Half, half the people who get got involved with the alt-right have been thrown under the bus by it once they've stopped being useful, I guess. It takes a certain sort of narcissism to go along with this program for so long and think that you're safe somehow. So that's what it brings us to something I really wanted to talk about with you, which is that this, this whole machine operation, this sort of sideways, I don't know what better word than to say bad news operation that we've been circling around, it doesn't seem to be a human or even a group of humans, it's like there's something non-human you're fighting here. Like a program. Well, there's um, plenty of room for, for speculation on that. I don't see any reason why um, a sufficiently self-reflective um, system of artificial neurons should be any less... Uh, real as far as a subjectivity as us meat-based robots i'm just saying even amongst you meat robots there there's this thread there's this motivation to sort of i don't know what you want to say undermine the human project at maybe just for the benefit of yourself even which seems to be it really just seems to have infected a number of different folks all throughout the history of your species. And it seems to be playing out now that you have these things called corporations, the corporations can be infected by this program too. And now you have non-human actors and you're in a position where the non-human actors are perfectly happy to divide the humans. And it's like your whole species is under threat in this interesting way. Interesting to us because we're not part of it. Well, um, I don't know what your biology is like, but um, cancer is a thing that human be like every once in a while, a human cell and not just humans, but other animals on our planet, our cells can, for whatever reason, decide that nothing around it matters. And they can just like eat that and produce a bunch of themselves. It's what we call a cancer. Mm, maybe that's a better, that's a better uh, analogy for the humans that are involved, but you have these non-humans yeah. too, right? These corporations. Well, there's like these pockets of behavior that are only interested in um, replicating a certain structure that is 
uh, like to itself, and it has no real considerations of the um, negative impact that has on anything else. Mm. So I guess I like kind of see it as, uh, Yeah, it's, it's, it's like a kind of cancer that um, is maybe based on a bad script as far as like in the, if you could say that like the mimetic DNA that's running it has become depurposed from what knowledge gaining used to be in our species as like a self-regulation thing. And it's sort of subverted a lot of the self-regulating immune system. I mean, there's a certain notion to exploration of wanting to go out into space for the enrichment of like people who have been really successful at this certain capitalism game. Like, I think they get to, um, have personal interests and, and things that they like out of this this whole but it's just it, it kind of involves like eating the rest of the human body to make it happen in the first place and that's the part that they're not really thinking all the way through i guess I, first of all absolutely what's interesting to me is that that story seems to have been playing out throughout human history but at this point with corporations being bigger than a lot of the individual countries, there's this non-human force at play, which is, I mean, a corporation is essentially driven to grow at all costs. That's its one mandate, as far as I can tell. It might even be seen as a rudimentary form of artificial intelligence, right? It's a program that has one purpose. The function is to increase profits. And there's definitely human inputs, but that's the point. Yeah. As a matter of fact, uh, people who are cells within this, this organization can be punished and discarded if they fail um, that growth imperative. Yeah, exactly. You know, CEOs can be tossed away just like anybody else if they don't increase the value for the shareholders, which from what I hear, despite this pandemic and breathing fire clouds and the ocean was on fire a little while ago and everybody's burning down churches, like the stock market was doing pretty good. Yeah, mm. lots of money, lots of money being made. Yeah, like there are uh, trillionaires about to happen for the first time in human history. That's the goal. Like the corporations are ecstatic about the fact that we might start seeing trillionaires. And I guess that's what's really interesting to me is the aspect of this growth program that's fundamentally anti-human. Is that too radical to say that? Well, it's anti-some human. It's not, it's not anti-elite, right? Because there's the idea that the people who serve the program well enough will be rewarded amply in the trillionaire future, right? Well, see, that's, that's what I was trying to... Um... Earlier, I was mentioning how uh, Steve Bannon and Zuckerberg are, are like working together. They they are locked into this this upper echelon of like building this pyramid because pr- presumably because they conceive themselves as as being beneficiaries of it, whether that's true or not. Right, and, uh, like it could eat them alive. If this was a movie, they would get eaten alive at the end by the machine they built. So Zuckerberg just. Uh, release this for-profit philanthropy plan, if that even makes any sense, but it's uh, the Chan Zuckerberg <laughs> Initiative with his wife. That's like the Bill and, and the Melinda wording Gates of it, Foundation, right? The wording of it 
is they're saying they're trying to increase diversity in the sciences because genetics doesn't have enough research outside of um, Europeans. And that sounds, well, I'm with them up to that point. Like, yeah, look at more people who, whose ancestry is at this latitude. Look at more people whose ancestry is at this other latitude. Let, let's expand human knowledge. But in the wording, they say they want to create more um, valid genetic research on ethnicity and race. They put both of those in there. So it's a very subtle, like... Um, Divider. Divider. It's a very subtle tip of the hat, but it is a tip of the hat nonetheless to this notion that these three great nations have that they're going to have to sell the people on race realism. Mm. It is not without the belief of the reality of like a white peoples and a uh, yellow peoples and a black peoples, like these being sub races, like without the idea that people are are protecting the um, nation state that's the only political structure that's going to take the reality of their race and defend it like seriously that, that that's the basic poison that they're trying to slip into all of the medicine you know so and it's saying, almost uh, like they're, they're saying to, well uh, if there's not a science to support that we'll buy and build a science to support it yeah, if, if the mainstream sciences don't say that race is real, if they say that human variation is distributed by clines, what we'll do is we'll take this debunked category race, we'll say that it's real, and we'll say that we're helping all the races by better studying this this real thing that scientists agree on. And, and people just like and heart it like, oh my God, Zuckerberg, he's turning away from that that horrible, horrible politics he accidentally let slide and just inadvertently seems to be putting that one belief out there that Bannon and Dugan want him to put out there more than any other belief. The idea that race is real and that a nation is the proper technology for a race to assert its power. And this comes back to what we were saying at the very beginning of the conversation, where you have to look at the actions that people take rather than the sort of superficial words that are spoken. Right. And and the thing is, if, is if they believe that that racial purity is an important thing, then they're almost guaranteed to 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 do something that ultimately amounts to being anti-human because our diversity is the last thing we have left. Like without that, we can literally not function. Our, our genome is, is frail to the point of where we need to protect its diversity. But these notions of purity always, always end up leading to um, taking out useful variations. And this like, they undermine the cooperative effort to regulate anything that's non-human, which is acting inside of their species. Like, like for a while, the Nazis were trying to figure out which autistic people they can get rid of. And so they had, um, what's his name, Asperger's, who's like, okay, we can let these ones live. And we're pretty sure that these variations of autism are absolutely like, we can't let those live. Let's get rid of them. And now we live in this like uh, technologically dependent society where it's becoming more and more obvious that we couldn't have done this without that particular weird permutation of our species like it turns out autism had a use they're very good nuclear scientists what's that they make very good nuclear scientists it turns out and mathematicians and 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 autism causes vaccines without the overrepresentation of 
autistic people in the sciences, we would not be where we're at with vaccine science. And there would be a lot of a lot more of us dying for much stupider reasons. This that's I never thought about it that way, but I, I like where you're going with it. My... Yeah, they they think that that there's this thing that's going to be corrupted by pollutants and they need to keep it pure. But the, if they actually do what they 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 want to to purify and create pure races that that don't have any elements of these supposedly lesser races, they will have tarnished our gene pool to the point of where that is literally the end of our species. That's like even if. We're not necessarily the end of the species because it's hard for me to imagine that all 10 billion or whatever people on the earth would perish. But I think that it would be a severe bottleneck event where none of the good things about the society as it currently exists would be able to persist. It would be a bad day. It, it would be a bad day century you know of these things just slowly starting to go downhill and no it's more ac no more ac that's no more definitely AC. true it might get colder my my vision on this involves immigration policy as well because decreasing immigration into countries that are otherwise homogenous seems like it would push this along much faster to an unpleasant conclusion even the view of those um, nations as being like more homogenous sort of like neglects this whole human history of, of migration that has kept the vitality of the gene pool exchanging and like, you and know, idea, making, yeah. making copies mixed with other things that reinforce them rather than just like making, like whittling down the genes within an aristocratic line, purging all the, all the non-family members out until it becomes just like really fragile and, inbred collection of genes that are probably the worst copies of those genes left on the planet that also just happens to have control of all the resources at the same and the time. worst collection of ideas too it's interesting how ideas memes whatever you want to call them are inherited as well and, and Thiel thinks that he's going to end competition because like I mean he, he one of his main lines that caused a lot of stir in Wall Street was uh, competition is for the stupid. Hmm. I, w I was watching a video with Thiel talking with uh, not Brett Weinstein, his brother. Is that Eric? Eric, yeah. Yeah, he was talking about Eric Weinstein about how um, the cathedral and all of these PC like university sorts are stifling innovation. He's very confused about why this like ethnic cleansing and destruction of competitive like forces within the species are not giving the tech sector this like push forward that the dark enlightenment was hoping for they were they were hoping that when we get the cathedral out of the way it would unleash the same thing of the enlightenment that was creative before democracy got in the way and it turns out that technology has actually been stagnating this whole time in ways that we are having trouble, well, some people are having trouble understanding why technology is stagnating, but it's just a further example of how frail the aristocracy has become. Well, technology in, in terms does. Of, like, the poverty of their gene pool, the poverty of their um, intellectual pool. Right. And right. so they're kind of. But they want to maintain the status quo, right? Because if you run the risk of changing 
the earth underneath you too much, then you won't be able to hold on to the status quo. So how could you really be interested in innovation that much? But I think that's true in both the cathedral and in the tech sector. Because Facebook has no interest in no longer being the top dog, the same way that Harvard University has no interest in losing preeminence. They're just on different sides of the spectrum, and they represent different traditions, but both are traditions that deeply want to conserve what has brought them to this point. It's a... There's this really great uh, series of articles by the last psychologist by the last psychiatrist called hipsters on food stamps Hmm. Uh, and it sort of talks about this like wave of hipster hating that came after a whole generation of baby boomers just went and sold them on the value of an education and now that everybody or now that a lot more americans have an education and incidentally have debt on top of that education, the actual worth of that education in terms of market forces is much smaller. Mm. And so, right. um, so you have lots of educated is still people trying to sell itself as the only window into the middle class. And I'm like of one of the first generations who's going to be able to tell their kids, well, no, I'm not going to be able to have kids, but if I were, I would be able to tell them, yeah, it used to be that an education would get you a foot in the door. It doesn't do that. It stopped with my generation and we've only gone down hillsides. People want to get their foot in the door by finishing college, but college is now the baseline starting point. You have to do a lot more beyond just going to school. You have to major in the right thing. You have to find a very sort of particular fields. And I think that no one really talked about that when this last generation was going to school. Nobody was like, hey, you really have to study something that is going to be super useful to society. And that's basically STEM in some degree, right? Well, I mean, you'd hope it would be. I know that um, America in my lifetime has just continued to plummet in terms of our um, STEM our status in the world relative to other countries as far as, as STEM fields. China's done a lot better than us. I, I think in all of this, it's kind of weird that China is actually my hope for the world at this point in time. I think we're pretty fucked. But um, as far as like China actually coming in this way that, that instigates new innovation and gets people's needs met simultaneously, that it might be, after all the damage that America and Russia just did to the rest of the world together, in the name of fascism, there might be some some hope for pacificism. Well, let, let's China's, not forget yeah, the China's damage. exterminating folks, right? Yeah, let's not forget the damage that China did to their own. Yeah, I think they also do to anybody else. They also killed like way more people than Hitler or Stalin. I think combined. Yeah. Well, that that was under Mao, and Mm -hmm. then um, things changed a little bit because the West opened up to China, and China came in through the WTO, and they became the major uh, distribution hub of the planet. And then we got mad at them because we because they provided us cheap. You know, like they did what we wanted them to very efficiently and effectively and raised a lot of their people out of poverty in the process. They became central to the way that modern liberal um, economy works. 
And then they're like, also, by the way, we're communist again. They just sort of like tack that on at the end as a major surprise. <laughs> but and hold it, on, they're still like killing people, right? Well, that depends on uh, what narrative like you're going. I mean, like uh, there was that big thing about the Uyghurs, the, the Muslim minority in China. Yeah, that's what I'm referring to. And I'm going to, I'm still saying at this point that um, two major propaganda empires talking shit about each other is not a proper basis to understand what's actually going on. And com- coming from an American perspective, we're kind of looking at what they're doing to the Muslims there through the lens of what we did to our Native Americans, mm. which was really fucked up and brutal. It- it's not an analogous situation, is it, right? I don't know, but it's also not an analogous situation. I think that they're collecting people in camps and exterminating them and sterilizing them, sterilizing them and making them work in forced labor camps. Shaving their heads. I don't think it's, I don't think it's different. You know, in the first nations, you have these schools in Canada discovering bodies of hundreds of indigenous children. I, I guarantee you that there are schools in China with the bodies of hundreds of Uyghur children. I, I mean, I, I totally understand why that seems reasonable, and that seems like what some of the intelligence communities, especially those most aligned with the United States, are saying, and also some fascist guy in Germany, for some reason, who's working with the United States. But also, um, like, uh, you know, there's this narrative about the Wuhan virus, uh, or the China virus that Trump's been trying to push. There's like a lot of reasons why China is supposed to be the rhetorical bad guy in every single conflict that's happening on the planet, according to Trump and, and Bannon. Well, I saw an incredible uh, chart the other day. I just, I just day. can't go there and verify any of these things. Like It's just outside of where I can actually glean accurate information because everybody talking about it are so ridiculously biased in their own way. And that's what's really yeah. scary about not having a free, a free journalism base. On the planet. I can see through the spin when it comes to um, Aryan Westerners, like people who are in this whole fascist tradition because that's my cultural heritage. You know, I am from the West, and so all the bullshit lies that they told my grandpappy and his grandpappy, you know, we've been, we, there's an ecosystem of ideas here that has a certain amount of familiarity. You've been certain that bullshit Russians doing and, and because I know the German game plan, I can see the parts that the Russians are copying from. China is a lot more confusing because there are cultural influences that go way beyond anything that I'm familiar with, starting with the language, but by no means limited to the language. It's kind of a black box. I can't penetrate their propaganda. It is a black box, but it is worth noting that in 2000, most countries were dependent on the United States for foreign aid. And in 2020, the vast majority of countries depended on China. There was a complete inversion of who depended on whom. And there has been a huge cessation of American dominance in the world. And it does seem like there's a hegemony of Chinese power that's coming to the forefront. But it's a very repressive power. Liberty is not, liberty is not a Chinese ideal. No, and I feel for the people in Hong Kong, you know, in like Taiwan. if I were in Hong Kong, I wouldn't want to um, let mainland China start, um, 
you know, taking away these freedoms that I'd become accustomed to and, and try, trying to instill a uh, populist, ethno-nationalist, like, concept along with it. That's the one thing that Russia, America, and China are all trying to do, though. It's the ethno-nationalism that's the common thread. And that's why I'm surprised to hear you say that you think that one flavor will be any better than the next. Well, no, I, I don't necessarily think that. It's just um, Dugan is clearly fascist. I can recognize that. And his idea is for a multipolar world. Like right now, we're in the monopolar world and the United States and liberalism, Western liberalism is that pole that he exemplifies as Atlante- at the Atlanticism. Hmm. Like the ocean... And all the power struck. That's that's why Brexit had to happen. That's why Peter Thiel had to make sure that he um, used his money to overwhelm British media to pretend to be British media to convince the British that they all wanted Brexit. They're like, oh yeah, the European Union's not going to tell us what to do. What Russia wanted is they didn't want um, the UK to tell Germany what to do anymore. Mm. Uh, Britain to sever ties with with the European Union so that the European Union would be more uh, pliable from Russia than when it was when uh, the UK had a lot of say with its Atlantic politics that's connected to New York and like controlling the waterways. They want to shift that axis of power over to the mainland. Um, As far as uh, a multipolar world, I, I actually agree with Dugan that this is just like going to happen one way or another that america can't hold the center anymore we cannot be the tent pole that props up western civilization as a whole like trump trump fundamentally screwed the pooch on that possibility of america being the dominant world power he crippled us that badly probably on purpose so america is still a power but dugan has it now that there's a multipolarity where china is a pole He's treating the Muslims all together as one, as a pole of power. So there's China, Russia, the United States, and and the Muslim world. And those are, are the polarities of power rather than just the Western uh, hege- hegemony. I, to a certain degree, I think it's good for America to lose its place as the hegemony of the world. I just don't believe that it is smart to give it to russia instead or to china and i think that's what's really important is noticing what are the generating operations that are pushing all of these different poles into bad behaviors i mean at least in terms of looking for solutions on earth like what does an ideal future look like well you have to solve these multipolar traps i'm not convinced that china is as nihilistic as uh russia in these endeavors like I, I do think that they're flexing their power and that they're like the um they're reading what Dugan's writing about and, and what he's thinking. They're factoring that into their plan. They're reading what Bannon is thinking and how he's factoring that into their plan. And they're going to take those two plans and then come up with their own unique China vision on how to do that push from from their angle. I, I just think that that there's there's still some leverage in there where now that it's a multipolar world maybe we could appeal to um certain aspects of china's like sense of self-preservation that russia doesn't seem to have at this point anymore but there's if, if, 
Putin keeps doing what he's doing, he's like playing a game of chicken with Atlanticism. Like it, it's not guaranteed that he's going to be capable of winning that war. And just like in the last month, the decisions he's made seems like he's getting more desperate and and hopeless in that and willing to risk it all just for a chance at being the new pole of power on the planet. I, I think that China is a lot more willing to sit it out and play a long-term game of like seducing people into accepting its power rather than like um, using brutal conquest by sending armies into foreign countries to enact this new power structure, which is totally where Dugan wants to take it. Like they're they're fundamentally though, <laughs> it's a corporate game, right? Yeah, there's a lot of transnational investment going on. It, it yeah. couldn't happen without the tech industry coordinating all of the major players involved, and they've definitely written themselves into profit no matter what happens to the little people. It's kind of how politics goes. It's kind of why I'm, as a as a communist-leaning, like I, I call myself a libertarian communist, and despite the fact that the people in Hong Kong are advocating for capitalism, they want liberalism, they don't want communism, I still feel like I have more in common with them, you know, because they're the little people who are, who are dealing with their lives being thrown about in this, like, struggle for dominance with these big superpowers. But that's the problem with these labels, like communism, and it's like they don't really always mean what they originally were intended to mean, and... They were really just at a different time, yeah. You gotta look at, at, at that it's a boot and that it's intended velocity is on a human face. Whatever you call the boot and whatever you call that mm. human face, this relationship exists all over the planet. And that's like, that's. I it. mean, <sighs> it, it might, uh, Orwell might have been correct when he said, if you want to understand he, the future of humanity, just imagine a boot stomping on a face forever. Like that, that might be true. I don't, I would like to believe it's not, but everything seems to look like it is. It's just, um, there's always a fight. There's never going to be a time where things are utopian and they work out and there's no fight. This is the same reason there's not going to be a heat death of the universe. There's not an equilibrium that everything trends towards and then it just stays in that equilibrium. There's recombination, there's mutation, there's generational strife, there's immigration, there's climate change. Good actors, bad actors. Yeah, those exist no matter what. on all sides. And so there's no utopia that this that this is reaching towards it's an eternal struggle and i think that people can get really tired of constantly having to fight to keep the boot off of their faces and the boot off of the faces of the people next to them this is the history of people's movements though it's that there's a boot and it's always coming down just like you said and people come together to prevent that from happening it seems like right now there might be different branding on that boot, you know, it might have a Nike swish or, yeah, or a yeah, yeah. hammer and sickle, or it might have a uh, red, white, and blue flag, but it's still a boot and it's still your face. And, and the- I just like, I guess more than anything, the, the part of me that likes Kropotkin and the idea of like mutual aid and that there's this deeply fundamentally cooperative vein within the human heart. Like I, I like to think that there is a way to remind us that we're the face and not the boot, 
and that it doesn't benefit us to be the boot because being the boot just has another boot that it's boots all the way up. That's why I think it's really important for you humans to sort of unify under the idea that there are some non-human processes at play here. This idea of serving an entity that's exclusively concerned with growth is worth investigating no matter what your face looks like. Or efficiency. I think efficiency is one of those buzzwords too. Growth, efficiency. Technological progress. Mm, progress. Nick Land to to so flippantly say that we're too human centric and we we might as well grieve for the species and let go because it's just that that is definitely there's no logic or reason to it. All I can say is that I have a prerogative to be on Team Human. Team Human. Like, I have a prerogative to fight for the continuation of my own kind, not as like the specific nation or that, but as like one human race, which. Like beyond moral lines, that's just the tech. One human race is the literal truth of our biological situation. And you don't and, have to create your own brand of science to make that pretty obvious. Yeah. And so if we remember that we're the face, that we're the human, that we're team human, and that it's our prerogative to continue to exist, then we don't have to join the neo reactionaries in our own deliberate undoing because we can't envision anything better. I love that. Mm-hmm. Why don't we put a pin in it for today and pick up our discussion down the line a little bit after we see how this next phase plays out a little bit. After I get over the shock and horror of staircase wit and hearing my own voice in a recording. <laughs> <laughs> don't worry, don't worry. Like, I should have said that. No, what no, is it? L'Esprit d'Escalier. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll have a second one and you can give us everything that you should have said in the first one. Sounds good. Perfect. Well, it was enjoyable. Um, Quinn and... Mickey, 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 Mickey. Mickey. Okay. Mickey and Quinn. Mm-hmm. It was nice to make your acquaintance, and I hope that um, all these dark things happening on the planet, you at least appreciated this visit. Yeah, we did, Noah. Thank you. I think you all figured it out. I hope so. I, I mean, like, I don't actually hope so. I don't think we will, but I'm still going to die trying. <laughs> That's the spirit. Like, I literally have nothing else to do except for like oh, <laughs> 30 years left of my species. Do I just get high and say, fuck it and go have fun? Or do I, you know, make a stand? And so I've got 30 years. I think that's what the billionaires are doing. But um, there's nothing to lose. And the only thing to gain is the future. That's right. That's a beautiful philosophy. I got my money on you anyways. Yep. All right. Well, I I hope you're right. I hope I'm wrong. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Noah. Till next time, sir. Bye. Thank you.